Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This is a logbook entry from June 10th, 1995. Guy phoned wanting info about gay interest things on the internet. I know nothing about this high-tech stuff, but are there any basic bits of info we can give to callers? I know that a friend of mine fixed up a date and had a holiday romance in Chicago via the internet, so it must be good. This is logbook entry from June 11th, 1995. I've been asked a number of times for gay email addresses, databases on the internet. If, if there are any volunteers who understand or know about such things, could they put the details in new info? And could Info Group either start or incorporate a file? Tash, you and me are the MSN generation. <laughs> Lol. Uh, I loved Yahoo Groups as well. Yeah, I came out to my parents whilst on MSN. OMG, BRB. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1992 and 2003. I'm Tash Walker. And I'm Adam Smith. Episode one, Multiple Paradox Net Files. This episode is full of memories about getting online and getting off. Dialing up to download your desires. And navigating the world... Wide. Web. (laughs) I remember when the internet first came into my house because I was 12 and I badgered uh, my my dad for a computer for a long time. I'm Harry Effery. I'm 35. And in the 90s and early noughties, the internet was huge deal for me. It helped me discover my sexuality. So uh, we couldn't just go to a computer shop. We had to go to some guy he knew who was selling them out of a a truck or something like that. Um, And he was like, oh, what's this internet thing you want to get? How how am I meant to do that? And he sent away your internet cable in the post those days because you had to get an AOL (laughs) CD-ROM. Wasn't just a a case of, you know, having internet installed in your house. And I got the computer in my bedroom because... They didn't, they, my parents had no interest and in, the rest of my family had no interest in, in, the, in, the, in the computer, something as weird and as newfangled as that. And I said, I'm using it for games, I'm using it for schoolwork, end of story. So I got the computer in my room, I got the internet uh, plugged in, and I really think that was the, the, the birth of my sexual awakening, having the internet. It was, it was all of a sudden this, this, this everything you know, there was like, you, you suddenly felt, I suddenly felt not alone, that there was other things, other people. Hello, AOL. <laughs> you know, an AOL chat and all the rest of it and the forums started to emerge. Hi, I'm Steph. I'm 51. I live in London. I'm originally from Kent, but I've lived in London for, for most of my adult life. And I think the arrival of forums were really key 
because that's when you started to I started to find out about all these other places and then of course you go to one you could pick up a publication which told you about other things and people were printing off little leaflets of like places you could go all over the country suddenly I started to realize actually there's quite a network of people that feel like I do but we're entirely underground so I think that that was a a big moment as well so you know the arrival of the internet was very significant because pre then life was incredibly difficult trying to find other people one of my users names was cyberspy27 from a long, long, long time ago. So if you ever cyber sex for Cyberspy27, then, you know, hello, it was me. <laughs> Definitely went through a thing of making up usernames, you know, and making up characters. Obviously, I'm, I'm an author now. That's, that's what I'm doing. I've, I'm, uh, I have a whole number of books uh, that are out in the world. And it really began by making up characters, making up people, men, gay men, and having tons of cyber sex with other men you know before i was going out to Bennett's, it was it was all night spent on the internet in this in this whole world that you had access to and talking to people talking to to other gay people talking to other people around the world like having information the message uh, the message boards uh, the chat rooms the 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 yahoo groups the the wasn't google then but the the geo cities that used to be the the there was one um uh face party if you remember from a long time ago and uh, the face party is agony and i wish i could remember her name but you know giving advice to, to to other young people to real people i had the dial up modem I was using the internet for work. I mean, back then, in the early 90s, there was the internet, but there was no good browsers. So I used to liken using the internet as wandering around a library in the dark. Uh, yeah, it may be all out there, but unless you knew the actual address of it, you couldn't find it. I remember once <laughs> with a friend uh, on, on our dial-up modem at home, saying, OK, what should we look for? And she said, uh, a naked picture of Catherine Deneuve. It took us 20 minutes to find a rather rubbish picture of Catherine Deneuve in a bikini. <laughs> Catherine Deneuve in a bikini. <laughs> have you Googled that pic? <laughs> well, I guess you have. Uh, yeah, it took me about 20 seconds, not 20 minutes, but still that feels like a little too long. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to the internet for our sex education. The internet is great. Yeah, but it is also a platform for people who are going to be shit to be shit. This is a logbook entry from April the 6th, 2002. Caller is looking for a gay internet watchdog because someone's sending him anonymous emails telling him he's being slagged off on various chat rooms. What can he do about it? Surely they monitor these chat rooms. I've given him Glad's number, the gay and lesbian legal advice line, but do they still exist? I suggested he contact the internet providers. Another volunteer writes, abusive emails. If you send an email to abuse at whichever IP the emails are coming from, they will, should be able to help, e.g. abuse at hotmail.com. It's an offence to send an abusive email. 
it sounds so innocent and sweet listening to that logbook entry, the idea that you can just write to the email providers and they will stop that kind of abuse. It's so naive, you know, now from where we are sitting, looking back, knowing what we know about the experience of LGBTQI plus people online experiencing hate crime, essentially abuse. It's been there right from the start of the Internet. This is a logbook entry from April the 29th, 1999. Took a call from a woman who had gone on the internet to a site called allexperts.com for advice on sexual problems. She received an email from a woman who apparently had been on the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, who suggested that if the caller visited her church or synagogue and prayed, she could change, as it was only through the miracle of God that you could change your ways. The internet was changing everything. And we have this logbook entry about QX, the gay scene magazine. It's from the 17th of July, 1995. Internet, exclamation mark. QX on the net. I love the abbreviation of that already. And it's got the email, qxmag at dircon.co.uk, and then the web address. And they've written out http colon forward slash forward slash www.dircon.co.uk forward slash qxmag, and then in brackets underneath. If this means anything, I'm amazed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that might not have meant anything to that volunteer, but other switchboard volunteers in the period were early adopters, as Anne Howard tells us. Boo Armstrong was the first co-chair, and she was a very dynamic presence. And I was completely shocked by her because she was such an unusual woman and such a clever and driven woman. And I always remember my first um, meeting with her, a group meeting that we had to discuss a particular issue. And she burst in late and it was a, she wanted to get her handbook written for the volunteers. And I found that after my first meeting, when I'd been in the organisation no more than a month, um, because of Boo's presence, I'd volunteered to write the handbook, which actually took about a year of my life. I can see her bursting through the door now and she, you know, we were all sitting there quietly and she was late and she just, and she needed all these people to volunteer and everyone ended up volunteering for this, which was brilliant. One of the things that um, Boo Armstrong was very active in was that she was an early adopter herself and she was determined that we would raise sufficient money through various sources to be able to Um, have an internet service and online access and that actually came in I'm not sure of the exact date but it would have been probably uh, the late 1990s that we got our first um, screens with databases and information on it and that was such a move forward it was incredible Uh, the systems were nothing like we would use now They were so clunky, it was unbelievable. And a lot of people still relied on paper-based systems uh, to back them up because one of the problems was the internet service, which was going down uh, probably two or three times a day. Um, And that made life very difficult for volunteers who were trying to find information or, or log their calls or any of the other things that was required at the time. It seems almost unbelievable now. Um, But yes, we had a a lot of paper-based systems as a backup to the internet, uh, which was very, very rudimentary in 
probably right up to mid-2000s. Didn't use it for kind of social purposes. It never occurred to me to kind of like hook up with people over the internet or join internet chat boards or socialise with people over the internet. It was still a kind of business thing for emails for me. Uh, I mean, although I was using... uh, ISDN telephone lines to send my designs as files down down the phone, um, you know, to to send them to like repro houses on the opposite side of the world. Um, I wasn't really using the internet in the way that people use the internet today, the way I use the internet today. Um, and certainly, my tech skills are very much twentieth century and not twenty first century. <laughs> I don't know how to do the most basic of internet things now. If you asked me to take a photograph and send it to you, I wouldn't be able to. This is a logbook entry from July 7th, 1995, entitled More Computer News. The menu system is in place and ready to be used. We seem to have solved the multiple paradox net files error, except for on the accommodation services section. We'll get that bit fixed now. Four machines are on in the phone room. The fish should be ready next week. There is a basic guide to using the system in all of the clipboards and pinned to the walls in the phone room. There's a proper user's manual under production. Cheers. Multiple paradox net files. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that means, but it's obviously a disaster. I remember getting those error dialog boxes on our Windows 95 computer that we had at home. And it used to say, um, your computer has committed an illegal operation and will be shut down immediately. What were you doing, Adam? (laughs) I don't know. I just remember it filled me with absolute terror. And I was convinced that police would abseil into the house from a helicopter and like, I don't know, seize the computer and me. (laughs) <laughs> this is terrifying. Have you ever heard of Gaydar Girls? Oh, no, I've heard of Gaydar, so I can imagine. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I used to go on Gaydar Girls. It's like a online chat room platform to meet other Gaydar Girls. <laughs> there was an early one for men called Manhunt. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Amazing. I actually met up with some people from it. Oh, wow. Mm. The internet was great for sex. And I remember having Cybersex on MSN and Yahoo Chat. ASL. What's ASL? It means age, sex, location. It's when you started chatting to someone on Yahoo Chat and they would say ASL and you had to put in your age, sex and location and I guess everyone lied. I used my uncle's credit card uh, or debit card or whatever it was to get myself a Gadar or XJAR or Gadar Plus or whatever membership because I wanted unlimited messages. I didn't want to you know, have five messages a night and that would be it. I wanted to be you know, on the whole thing. So I just told him it was, I can't remember what, I told him it was something nonsense and I'll, I'll give him the cash and use his credit card, no problem. I had my, I guess, I think it was, I was, I guess, 14 or 15 when I started with my, with my Gator Advanced membership. And, but it was amazing because there was all these chat rooms from, of different locations. You could speak to people in Glasgow who were on Gaydar. You could speak to people in a different city. You could speak to people who were younger, who were older, who were into like all these different kinks that, that you had no idea what it was even about. But you could communicate with them and, you know, and, and realize that not only you're not alone, there's other people just like you around the corner even. I do. I remember, I remember actually doing it myself on the Ginger Beer website they had a forum 
ginger beer was women only. It was prior gay, gay, gay gaydar girls. And um, yeah, it had a, a chat room and you went in there. <laughs> I think I was a bit much for them, really. <laughs> I went in there just looking for casual sex. Do you know what? I got the weirdest responses. But yeah, it was, it was, a, <laughs> I think they were more your, more your woolly jumper kind of, you know, lentil eating lesbians. Hi, hello, my name is Fish, also known as King Frankie Sinatra, and I was running club nights for lesbians and dykes in the 90s. Thank you very much. I just said, does anybody fancy some casual sex? And, um, and, um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, it, yeah. I don't think that's what it was designed for, but um, it was my first and only foray. I did get some some responses, and I did meet up with a couple of people, and and then I had no casual sex, in case you're interested. But um, it kind of yeah, that was my first and only really, really put my toe into the water of internet meeting. I just I'm old school. I'd rather see what someone smells like. <laughs> I actually started using the internet for cruising probably about, well, it wasn't the internet, but about 1978, something like that. Hello, I'm Derek Cohen. I'm fairly ancient. This was a time when there was something called Prestel, which was a sort of text-only information system that also had various social things and there were chat rooms and things and a group of people set up a, an area called the CUG, Closed User Group, which was a basically a sort of live chat for gay men. And I, for some reason, SMers tend to be more techies. I don't know if it's because we play with all this gear and stuff. So, and obviously early adopters getting on this were people are quite techy because you had to have a thing that you plug your phone handset into and it made lots of noise and you needed a computer and stuff where most people didn't and in fact quite a few of the men who I went on to have SM sex with I met on this thing and again when people say where did you meet so and so I met him on the cug the cug is a gay men's live chat system run by the British government, BT, British Telecom, because it was a British Telecom thing. And it's again like, wow. And that's because there were a group of people who had the leeway within their department to set this up. So that's my first experiences. And it was just text and you typed and everyone had a little nickname and stuff and you chatted about sex. And I'm still friends with some of the men I met on the CUG. And it was like the first taste of being able to chat to people live who weren't in your town and that sort of thing because before that if you wanted to meet people and I, I did it if you wanted to meet someone for sex or SM sex which was in a sense harder to find there were adverts in gay times sometimes rather cryptically worded it depended on their policy and you write a letter and put two first class stamps in the envelope and wait for a reply and it was all you know, waiting five days to make a date when you can do it in three seconds now on WhatsApp or Messenger or something. I'll have a, a, a nice active SM sex life. And 
it's always nice to have new ideas and things to tease your your boyfriend with and things like that. So the internet's been an enabler like that. It's also exposed people to a much wider variety of practices. There's there's a lot of stereotyping about in any pornography of, of you know body shape and this sort of stuff. And it's nice, I think, that these days there's an appreciation of older men, of bigger men, of men who are either hairless or very hair. The the diversity's grown because there's so many more places you can look for it, and that's been a good thing. My first sexual experience was uh, in an Asda toilets. So it's not not really the stuff that great romances are made of, but it was it was someone from Gada who someone who was 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 my age, um, you know, probably underage as we both were. I think I went in three times to, to buy things that I didn't want or didn't need because I was waiting for this person. Um, you know, so I went into the bathroom with an Asda bag full of like chocolates and drinks and stuff because and he said to me do you want do you want to hang your hang your shopping hang your messages on top of the door so it doesn't get like on 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 the on the nasty tiles like the wet tiles and we were into a cubicle and I, I I really don't think he was much older than I was at him I think it must have been 15 16 and I just remember we 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 didn't even take each other clothes off we just took our trousers down as if we we're both going to pee in the same bowl and Kind of just went from there, like you know, we we talked a great talk uh, in the weeks before we come to meet, and whatever we did, I think it was over in about five minutes. But it was something real, and I remember walking out of it, not done much, but I done something, and it was like on the way to becoming, you know, a person like a like a like a gay man. Like I wasn't just a kid anymore, a boy, a child. I was like taking, I was owning my sexuality, which I didn't even, I guess, think of it as a concept at the time. But having like the internet and gaydar facilitating that was for me great. It was amazing. There was no no downside. I love what Harry says about experiencing something real, especially because people, well, we all curate our online personas. Completely. That's such a big part of our lives today. So we spoke to someone who's been very online for most of their life, Jake Edwards, a YouTuber. They're known as Jake FT Magic on Instagram and Twitter. And Tash, are you ready for this? They've got a combined following of more than 92,000 followers. Just a couple less than me, then. <laughs> On YouTube, their videos have been seen two and a half million times and they've amassed this big following by connecting with and helping thousands, maybe millions of people when he shared life stories and experiences when he identified as a trans man. So I've done something pretty catastrophic. At the time of filming this video, I've told maybe one of my friends that this has happened. And that feels kind of weird because I tell my friends everything. This is so hard for me to talk about. It's pushed me to the edge, really. I've been on the fucking edge, but now I'm almost there. I just, one little push and I will be there. For anyone who has been waiting a long time and feels like it's hopeless, it's not, you will get there. And it feels like you're gonna have to wait another two years, but It'll happen so quickly, something will give and 
you'll be there. So hang on to that last little bit of hope. That's how I'm feeling today. A big, complicated, clusterfucky mess of emotions. And I will never stop feeling a complicated, clusterfucky mess of emotions, because that's just what being human is. Hope you enjoyed this video. I will see you next week. Peace. They built a career on the internet, putting themselves out there. But when we spoke to Jake, they told us that it's not been without personal costs. Hi, my name is Jake Edwards. My pronouns are he and they. I'm non-binary, bisexual, um, and I've been on the internet for quite a while. Um, I mostly use Instagram these days, which was weird because it used to be my least used platform. Um, I'm a bit of a lurker on TikTok. I don't really make TikToks, but I spend an ungodly amount of my time on there. I recently got a notification that I've been on Twitter for 13 years, and I was like, that is literally more than half my life. I've spent more than half of my life putting my thoughts into tiny character-limited chunks to push out to the rest of the world. And I try not to think about the amount of time I've been staring at a screen, thinking about how to word my thoughts rather than just thinking them. And I've phased Twitter out of my life almost accidentally. I think I once took a break because it was stressing me out. But at the same time, I'm sometimes thinking, like, am I losing out on, like, my social capital? Like, am I dying as an influencer because I didn't use Twitter anymore? Like, is that it now? Am I an internet dinosaur because I don't tweet, like, at least five times a day? And it's, like, a genuine real concern I have. And every time I have that real concern, I'm like, that is the most obnoxious thing you could ever think in your life, that you have decreased in value as a human being because you don't tweet. <laughs> oh, I use Instagram stories pretty much every day, um, but it's nice and it feels like the way people used to mock the use of the internet. Like, I will take pictures of my food, I will take obnoxious selfies, I will talk about what I'm doing at work that day, I'll do little polls and little questions just because I want to know what people thinking about um, what do they do for a living, what are their favourite crisps, because I like having that quick and easy interaction with a bunch of strangers that feels very, you know, unique, like, oh, we're in this moment together. My generation of, I want to be special, I want to be noticed, I want to be internet famous, I want 300 people to like all of my Instagram posts, and it's this thing that we are now trying so hard to unpick from people and saying your value is not the amount of engagement you get on the internet, but that kind of positivity did not really exist or was only just starting to find its footing when I was doing that. So I was still like the X Factor generation of like, I'm going to go on the X Factor one day and be famous and get a record deal. And you just get brought up in that kind of fantasy. Um so I think it was, a part of me was like, oh yeah, this is my big break. This is me taking centre stage and performing the way I've been taught I should. Um, and it feels, weirdly, it feels very Bo Burnham. I don't know if you've seen Bo Burnham's comedy special Inside, um, but it's like he draws back the curtain on what that feels like. And you are like, you can be depressed and having a mental breakdown, but you still want to make it funny and put it on the internet. You still want to make it, consumable and palatable and relatable and you want other people 
to see that. And it, I think there's something, there's kind of a bit of an ego behind that. But then there's also, it comes back to that core human thing of wanting other people to relate to you or wanting to know that you're not alone in how you feel. So my entire life feels like it's interwoven with the internet. So when I think about growing up, I measure my life against where I was on the internet and what I was doing on the internet at that time. I started to discover that there were trans people on YouTube. And this was when I was going through my big gender awakening, the big scary first gender awakening, um, the first of unfortunately many. <laughs> um, and I just started talking about being trans. Uh, I started dating somebody who was also trans and we started talking about our identities together separately and we kind of built up this community together. I have a lot of conversations with myself in the mirror and that sounds weird but I it's something I've always done since I was a child. It's something I still do as an adult. Um, it's kind of like my way of rehearsing social situations that will probably never happen um, and also it's kind of like self-therapy to talk out loud the way I'm feeling to myself and look myself in the eye when I'm saying those things and YouTube felt like that except instead of looking in my eyes in the mirror I was looking down a camera lens so it felt incredibly intimate anytime I'd film a video it felt just like a conversation with myself um, and it felt emotionally important for me to do that so realizing that other people were, you know, sitting in the room with me was strange to strange to feel like that was real. Um, it almost felt like some kind of fever dream or like a nightmare or something when I'm having those conversations with myself in the mirror. It's like imagining somebody pulls back the curtain and there's an audience of 300 people that have just heard me repeat the same sentence five times because I wanted to get the sound just right whilst I looked myself in the eyes and said, yeah, you're, you're okay. You're doing okay. Um, it's, it feels like um, being exposed um, and being vulnerable and I don't think I was ready at that time to comprehend what that meant. So I was making videos for me um, and by that I mean also people that, that, that were me, that were young trans men at the time. I was identifying as a trans man so I was making it for younger trans men um, who were going through the process of either going to their GP or going to the gender clinics. Um, and really it was it was talking to a mirror in a sense. Um, so when I started to meet the people that watched my videos in real life, it was quite overwhelming at times to to see people that, you know, looked like me, that sometimes talked and dressed like me. Um, and that real-time interaction was incredibly overwhelming. I don't think I ever learned how to navigate that situation. I talked to a lot of other YouTubers at the time and they said, oh yeah, like it just becomes a habit. You just know what to do and how to speak to people. Um, and I don't think I ever learned that. It was always really difficult and I'd always have these like little phrases that I keep in my back pocket um, to try and make it not as awkward. Um, but it was always, I think, when you suffer from imposter syndrome and you have like a hundred people in a line, 
waiting to meet you and a fair amount of them say oh you know this changed my life your videos have saved me when I was in a really difficult place it's hard to really feel that emotion it's hard to really understand what that actually meant for that person um, and I think it was emotionally challenging I think I felt very disconnected from the reality of what I was doing um, and I think looking back on it now, it's so surreal to be an incredibly mentally unstable teenager being thrust into the limelight because I'm using the internet as my diary. Um, and it really led to some quite complex situations of then meeting people in real life that knew the internet version of me and the way people would respond and react to me. Um, I've realized recently in therapy that it caused me <laughs> some issues in the way that I um, now struggle to believe in friendships um, and, and struggle to sometimes socialize and interact because I have this complex of, oh, what if they only like that one version of me that's from the internet? The impact of the internet on trans people is, from what I experience, can be one of two extremes. And I think it's really heightened the panic and fear and shame and pain that trans people feel because you have quick and easy access to you know, all forms of transphobia and all forms of people debating your right to exist. And any time a Sunday newspaper will bring up trans people, it will always be negative. And you'll know about it. There'll be debates. It will hit trending. And you're constantly exposed to the worst opinions. Um, but also, I feel like it's brought on this era of trans liberation that certainly existed before, but now because the internet is like this hyper uh super quickly connected um and quickly evolving sphere you can access that feeling of of liberation you can access that euphoria and our evolution and our progress in real time um and that can be really quite beautiful um but yeah it's it's that double-edged thing it can be quite scary i think to know all around the world, what is happening to trans people. Listening to Jake just makes me think about the state of the internet today. You know, please, people, just be kind. Yeah, don't get drawn into the bullshit on the internet and just share trans and queer joy instead because there is so much of it. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about a landmark fight for equal rights, which was huge in this period, 92 to 2003. It's all about the age at which you're legally able to consent to sex. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed callers' details. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline, and supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag thelogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and the team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, content is Queen, David Pye, 
the staff and volunteers at Switchboard, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast, or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630. Email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.